You're ready. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to... In- <laughs> you good? Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Encounter Church. My name is Dirk, preaching pastor here at Encounter, and we're super excited, super pumped that you're all with us today. Uh, before we see the conclusion of the series, Jesus Hates, what we're actually going to do is take a preview, take a look at the series that we're kicking off next week called He, Not me. Uh, this series is our run-up before our Good Friday and Easter experiences. Uh, this is a series when we're asking these really big questions about God, about the Bible. Uh, questions like, how in the world does the death of God benefit me? How in the world does the resurrection of Jesus raise me? I mean, this is a series that's obviously really big questions about God, church, the Bible. If you know someone who has big questions like that, uh, if you have somebody in your life who would benefit or be blessed by a series like that, this is a perfect series to bring them to. And again, it kicks off next week right here called He, Not Me. All right, the series today, we continue on and even finish part five of five, is called Jesus Hates. And one of the things that we're taking a look at is how Jesus has has this absolute disdain for indifference. Indifference is like apathy. Indifference is disengagement. Indifference, indifference is meh, right? Indifference isn't even like a, a, a word. Or it's just a sound. It's a syllable. It's a grunt. It's just meh. Indifference, meh, is asking somebody, where do you want to go out for dinner? And the response is always meh. Or what time do you want to get to the party? And the answer is Meh. And indifference is so entirely frustrating when somebody gives that repeated response, meh. And it's just like, we don't know what to do with that. And if you're anything like me, it kind of starts to get your blood boiling even more than a little. And I would not advise this by any means, but I actually had a, had a friend who asked his wife uh, what she wants for dinner. And she'd say, I don't care a lot of the time. And so he decided to do something. Once He said, okay, you don't care, great. He went into the kitchen and he starts banging pots and pans around. He like, I don't know, turns on the stove, boils uh, a cup of water, right? He sets the table. He calls her over and he says, hey, honey, I made dinner. It's exactly what you wanted. And there on the plate was just a little note that said, I don't care. <laughs> like a cautionary tale is how we describe that in the preaching world. <laughs> Something not to do. But isn't that, isn't that true? That's what meh does to somebody. That's what indifference does to someone. If we're going to bring it down to another level and make it maybe really real for some of you, I, I've sat across for many of you, and we've had this conversation uh, about the, the dating relationship that you're in right now. Uh, because you're in a relationship uh, that maybe he is, is totally disengaged, is totally meh about the whole thing right? And, and, and you care about him and you want to make it work. And you just want to know, like, like, where are we? What are we doing here? And it even gets to the point at sometimes when you're together long enough, and, and isn't this true and also uncomfortable, but I'm going to say it anyway, that it gets to the point where you're okay with either, either getting married or breaking up. It's like the ends of that circle start to connect because that's what meh 
That's what indifference does to someone. And you're like, it's fine either way. I just need to know. And if the answer again is indifference is meh, it communicates so much more, doesn't it? It communicates non-committal, non-engagement, disinterest. And Jesus, like all of us, just can't stand it. And he's going to do something about it. He's going to do something about it and actually provide a way out of it. He's going to say something about it, especially when it comes to the specific kind of indifference, specific kind of meh, called spiritual indifference, spiritual apathy, meh. Because for Jesus, consider it from his perspective. He comes from heaven to earth. He provides this ministry whereby he teaches us everything we need to know about how not just to have life, but John 10, 10, how to have it to the fullest. And he teaches us how to have that full life. And then at the end of his ministry, he actually gives his life to us by dying on the cross and then raising new life and then earning perfection, earning eternal life on our behalf as he, as he ascends back up into heaven. And for so often, for so many of us, the response to all that is just kind of the spiritual, meh. And he can't stand it anymore. And so he actually wrote, Jesus had a letter written to this church simply to address this very phenomenon. If you have a, uh, a Bible with you, maybe on your phone, uh, you can flip to the book of Revelation. Uh, in the back of the Bible, it's super easy to find. If you get to the maps, uh, you've gone too far. If you get to the table of weights and measures, you've gone too far. Just back it up just one. If you'd like to follow along, you don't have a Bible with you or a phone, uh, there's a Bible underneath the chair in front of you right now. You can just go ahead and, and, and pick that up. Flip to the book of Revelation chapter 3. Before we get into this text, though, I just want to say it's a, it's a little bit of a weird one, all right? Because most of the time, the red letters of Jesus are recorded in the Gospels of Jesus. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, these eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and ministry. What's unique about the book of Revelation and these red letters in Revelation is they actually took place. These are letters, these are words that Jesus spoke after he died, which is a little bit creepy, right? That there's this like beyond the grave kind of letter written back. But actually that's exactly how it goes because don't forget he died, but he also raised to new life. And so he continues that ministry on by speaking to the churches back then. And also you're gonna see starkly real message for the church today. So Revelation chapter three, this is a message that Jesus gives John, one of his disciples, to give to this angel overlooking the church in the city of Laodicea. Like that whole thing. Kids, that's how we used to communicate before Snapchat. <laughs> this is us. Revelation. We're going to pick it up in verse 14 where it simply writes, Jesus writes, to the angel of the church in Laodicea writes, and before we get into the content of the message of what Jesus has to say, Jesus is actually going to be building on what they already knew about Laodicea. And so we have to kind of catch ourselves up to the speed of at least knowing as much about Laodicea as the people did then, the reputation of the city of Laodicea. You see, the reputation goes far beyond the city itself. 
The reputation goes all the way to the island of Patmos where John, writing this, is exiled. People knew about Laodicea. They knew about Laodicea because of a few things, because, because they were rich, affluent, because they were industrial, they're known for some things, and also because they were a proud people, those three things. Um, Jesus was, uh, was uh, raised, grown up in the city of Nazareth, which is modern-day Israel. Uh, we're talking about Laodicea, which is modern-day Turkey. It's interesting now, at least it is to me, because there's a lot of uh, archaeological excavations that are happening in the area. And so uh, uh, archaeologists have dug into the cities of Nazareth, where, the city of Nazareth where Jesus was raised. And they actually found that the average size of a home in Nazareth where Jesus grew up was only a couple hundred square feet. I mean, just for perspective, you parked this morning in a parking space just outside our building in roughly the same size as the average home where Jesus grew up. That's a small house. However, the archaeological excavations in Laodicea, modern-day Turkey, what they unearthed was the average size home wasn't a couple hundred square feet, a parking lot spot. No, it was a couple thousand square feet. I mean, that's comparable to the homes today. That's Laodicea. The homes were 10 times bigger in most of the cases than they were elsewhere in the world. That's, that's the affluence of Laodicea for you. That's a little bit about what they were about. They were also an industrial people. And this is going to come up later, so I'm going to ask you uh, to remember this. They were known for three particular industries, banking, clothes, and medicine. In fact, could we just say that all together now? One, two, three. Banking, clothes, Medicine, nice, a special kind of medicine. It was actually this, this eye salve that they, would, uh, that they would mine, a special mineral, put it on eyes, and it would alleviate, reduce inflammation and infections. They were known for this. It really put the city of Laodicea on the map. People came from all over to check this place out. In fact, I wanted to bring us to Laodicea this morning, so I uh, actually just brought a, a picture of uh, Main Street, of Laodicea. You can kind of see right now we're standing on Main Street looking down. You can see pillars lining the road on each side. Uh, like, like, I don't think it's a stretch of an imagination to simply uh, picture this with luxury retail shop, high-end stores, brand names lining the road. What you're looking at right now uh, is Chicago's Magnificent Mile. It's LA's Rodeo Drive. I mean, this was the place to get your clothes, to get your, your high-end spa medications. This was the place. It was nice. They were, they were an affluent place. They were an industrial place. And all of this combined to make them a proud place. You know, a little while before Jesus had this message given to the church in Laodicea, it was actually an earthquake that hit that area. And it devastated uh, the city. It reduced much of it uh, to just rubble. And it wasn't uncommon in those days at all. But what was uncommon is that when the Roman Empire found out what happened and they came in to protect and preserve this high-end strategic location, they came in with some, uh, with some help. Uh, the, the National Guard offered to help rebuild the city in Laodicea because they're a proud people said, no, I think we got this. 
No, thanks. No, we don't, we don't need or want your partnership. We'd prefer to do this entire rebuild of our city on our own. They're proud people. They're proud people, listen to me, proud enough to build their city up on top of a plane, like high up. Now it was, it was good for protection, but it also kind of like begs the, the question of like, how do you get water up to a plane like that? And, and most people say it wasn't even about protection. Most people write about this and say, you know, it was just the pride of the Laodiceans. They wanted these, these sweeping views of the valley below. They had enough protection. They were wealthy enough to afford the protection. They wanted the views because they were proud people. The question remains, how do you get something so essential as water up to a city like that? Well, as my brother likes to say, who uh, builds luxury homes on the lakeshore, he says to his clients, listen, anything is possible for the right price. <laughs> and what a price it was. You see, what they did is they would take, uh, they'd take water from this uh, uninhabitable region in the mountains as a military outpost, and they would use these massive stone aqueducts to pipe water into the city. But listen to me, as it came in, that water from the mountains was icy cold. And, and so they didn't want to bathe in it because you're a proud Laodicean and you can afford much better than that than, than, to, than to bathe in icy cold water. Nobody wants that. And so what they would do is they would actually go to a different area, a different place where there were naturally occurring hot springs and they would take water from over there and build these massive aqueducts and, and pipe it in. And because they're Laodiceans and they're a proud people, they didn't want uh, the, the cold water uh, mixing with the hot water. And they didn't want the cold water becoming warm or the hot water becoming cold. So what they did, I brought a picture of this one too, they would have pipes. And they actually did this, this first century form of, of insulation around the pipes. We're talking about miles and miles on end from the mountains and from the hot springs to bring it in simply to keep the cold water cold and the hot water hot. That's Laodicea. They cared so much about their water that there was actually uh, an inscription that was unearthed only a couple of years ago, actually, that dates all the way back to 122 AD, which is only a little while after this letter was written. But the inscription uh, provided, prescribed uh, this punishment, a fine for anybody tampering with the water system. That's how much they cared about it. They carved it into stone on the system itself that if you mess with this, there's a fine anywhere from modern day equivalent $5,000 to $45,000 on the high end, depending on what level of tampering or pollution that you provided. They cared a lot about their water. And Jesus knows that. And so he picks up on that theme. And in his charge to the church in Laodicea, he's going to have a lot to do with that precious and expensive water system that they've just built. Listen to these verses, continuing on in verse 14. Red letter, words of Jesus. He goes, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Jesus says, I know your deeds, 
that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, he goes, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth, which is just a nice way of of literally translating this. I'm about to vomit you, right? Because I have had it with this. Now he's talking, Jesus is talking to Laodicea because they care so much about their water system. I think that if Jesus is going to come here and talk to us today, and if he was going to bring that same message, he would relate it a little bit different because he's relevant, engaging to the culture uh, that he's speaking into. He's accommodating that way. I think if he were to be talking to Encounter Church, he would say, listen, listen, you like your coffee either hot or cold, but lukewarm does nothing for you. I get that. And it's disgusting. I mean, uh, in the summertime, on a hot day, a nice iced Americana, doesn't that sound refreshing? Or, or maybe in the wintertime, which in Michigan seems to last from August until June, doesn't a hot cup of coffee sound really good? And you can either have hot coffee or you can have cold coffee, but it's like that, that stale, tepid, middle uh, temperature coffee. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that it really has no use whatsoever. And I want to spit it out, vomit. All right, church, this is, this is the part that's about to get very real. And this is the part that honestly, even though I couldn't be with you this weekend, I wanted you to hear this from me. Because outside of those of you guests uh, who are worshiping uh, with us, uh, many of you know me and you know that I care deeply about you. And I want to see your spiritual lives thrive. And so I wanted you to hear from me, not from a guest, not somebody else standing on the stage, but I wanted you to hear from me that some of us, some of you may be in that middle ground. This is not God saying to the church then and to the church today that I wish you either loved me or hated me. But this middle thing, I can't stand. He's not saying that. He's not asking anybody to hate him. He doesn't want that. He wants you to be useful. He wants you to be passionate. He wants you to be good. Whether it's cold, whether it's hot, it doesn't matter. It has a purpose though. It's ready. It's passionate. It's without this stale, lukewarm indifference. The promise of God in the Bible is that someday, all of us, we're going to go meet God. And we're going to see him. You're going to see him face to face. And on that day, I wanted you to hear from me before then that it's possible that God looks at you and say, I never really knew you. More than that, the way that you pretended to know me. It didn't just break my heart. It turns my stomach. See, many of us, I think the way that we do church, the way that we do our faith, it's like we gather up all of these facts and we know a lot about God and we know a lot about Jesus, but we never really get to know God. We never really know Jesus. We don't don't trust him like we trust ourselves. And that's what Jesus wants to rescue us from. And, And it has kind of like this inoculating effect, right? 
or you get a vaccine and you just get like just a little bit of something, right? But, but not enough to actually make like an impact, make a difference, but it's just like a little bit of something. And that's what many of us have when we grow up in church, when we hear some of these stories and we just assume that everything is good and we're in because we've gotten a little bit of Jesus to make us feel better about our lives, but not enough to actually change how we live. And many of our baptism stories that we celebrate here on adult baptism weekends are people who say, you know what, that was me. I had a little bit of Jesus growing up and I thought I had the whole thing and I didn't think it really worked. And so I was living kind of like this stale, tepid, stagnant, moldy, bacteria-ridden, kind of stopped water that was lukewarm and that was my faith. And it wasn't really good for much. And so I gave up on it. And many of the stories are like, and then like something, like the dam burst and the, and the water came rushing in and it was refreshing and cold or, or it was useful and hot. And it was like, I lived this whole new life and I'm ready to, to show the world, declare to the world that I've been raised with Christ because for the first time, many of these stories, for the first time or for the first time in a long time, I realized that that faith that I had wasn't faith at all. In fact, it was God saying, that doesn't just break my heart. It turns my stomach. And so he's gonna do something about it this morning. Jesus is actually going to provide this path forward. Now, if you're a, a note-taking kind of person, this is a time to like click that pen, right? You know, we have a saying around here, don't we, many of us, uh, where we say oftentimes that a dull pencil beats a sharp mind in remembering the truths that God tells you. So I think God might be speaking to you, the red letters, words of Jesus directly speaking to you, and he's going to tell you three things. He's going to tell you to identify this issue of why why we're stagnant and lukewarm. He's going to tell you to do one specific thing about that. And he's going to tell you to keep your eye on the prize. First of all, identify that issue. He continues on. Jesus continues on in verse 17. He goes, you say, I'm rich. I have acquired wealth and I don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked, harsh, but listen to the words that he uses. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Does this sound familiar? Remember the three things that I told you that Laodicea was famous for. Banking. Clothes, medicine, particularly that I kind of self medicine. Jesus picks those three things up specifically and says, listen, you're relying on all the wrong things. You're taking the good things that your city has going for it, that, that your people have going. You're taking those good things and you're making them everything. And Jesus is like, Here's, here's, what, here's what happens. The more, listen to me, the more you invest, the more you dis get distracted by the world around you, the more it takes your eyes off from the God above you. The more invested you become in the world around you, 
the more distracted you become from the God above you. If you're gonna identify the problem, identify like that core thing, right? Of what your spiritual stagnation is, of what your spiritual apathy or indifference, that meh really is. Maybe it's a question of not needing God or not wanting God. See, I think this distraction comes in those two forms. Uh, For the people then and for our people, for us today, is that the people then in Laodicea, I don't think they needed God. They had so much going for them already. Even if there was an earthquake, they're like, no, that's fine. We can rebuild on our, all on our own. We have the technology. We have the, the structure. We have the know-how. We have the resources. We don't need God. I mean, the people then said that they didn't need God. How much more in our relative place of comfort do we say that we don't need God? Some of you have had these experiences where you go to places where where they rely on God on a daily basis. And you see what that does to someone and and you're struck with the faith that they have. I talked to someone not too long ago who traveled to Kenya and they said uh, that they were in this like little bitty uh, chapel church kind of thing way off the, the beaten path in this village somewhere. And they said, listen, these people, they didn't have anything except two hands to clap with, but they're clapping all for the glory of God. And part of that is because they need God for their very sustenance, for life. Now, honestly, when was the last time you actually, you needed God? Because 99.9% of the time, I mean, you got this. You don't need God. And so we get distracted and invested in the world around us instead of the God above us. Maybe, maybe you didn't need God. Maybe you don't want God. I think there's probably this temptation in a wealthy city like Laodicea, a lot like today, where there's this temptation to kind of arc the, the Christian life to, to make it fit into the, the life of the rest of the city of everybody else around. So, so it's pretty soon that it's like, I don't even, I don't, I don't want God to interrupt my way of life because I'm kind of carving out a nice little life here. I don't, I, don't want to, I don't want God to, to strike that or to interrupt that because I, honestly, I want to be like everybody else. It looks, it looks like that's working out pretty fine most of the time for everybody else. I don't want God to ruin that. And so I want to go to the same movies as everybody else. I want to listen to the same music as everybody else. I want to just to have the same morals as everybody else. I, I want Uh, I I want to spend my money the same as everybody else, which ends up getting into debt the same way as everybody else, which ends up getting divorced like everybody else. And then the Christian culture, church, arcs exactly into what it looks like to not know Jesus and be radically changed by him because we don't want it to. So maybe you don't need God, maybe you don't want God, but, but identify what it is. Investing in the world around you can sometimes distract you from the God above you. Identify what that thing is and then do something about it. Maybe just one thing about it. He continues on in verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke. And I discipline, he rebukes, he disciplines, not because he doesn't like you, but because he loves you. So be earnest and repent. And then this famous line, Jesus, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with that person and they with me. I'm outside. I'm knocking on the door. Here I am. Open the door. Listen, I'm standing right here and I'm ready to come in, but I need you to trust me at least as much to open the door and to welcome me in. And I promise I'll come in. I promise I'll sit down and we'll eat together. But you got to trust me and open the door. And here's where I think Jesus is asking some of you today, open the door. Trust me. Maybe just give, give one area. Do one thing every day this week that requires faith and open that door. I, I wanted to help you out. And you could do a lot of things, right? You could come to worship. That's one thing. Uh, you, you could witness to a friend. Uh, that's one thing. You could get into the word. That's one thing. Um, you could do something that presumably doesn't start with a W. <laughs> that's one thing, right? You could give for the first time. You could group, small group with somebody else for the first time. There's all kinds of things, one things. And I just had a specific list um, I want to share just ideas. Just listen for, for however Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart today and say, hey, that's maybe your one thing every day this week that requires faith. Maybe it means standing up for someone, standing up for something, even though you know that you're going to be ridiculed because of it. Maybe it's uh, giving, even when it's a stretch to give. Maybe it's giving to and through the local church. Maybe this one. Maybe it's giving to and through someone else entirely. Maybe you just hear a story about somebody in need and you're like, let me bless you. Let me help you out with that. Maybe it's giving your time. Maybe it's giving a ride to the grocery store or a ride to church, giving something, even when it's a stretch because you trust God to fill that gap. Apologize to someone, even if you don't think you're the majority wrong doing in that situation. Forgive someone, even when you don't feel like forgiving them. Volunteer to pray out loud at your next small group. Sometimes we, we fall into these rhythms or these habits where like the same person prays every time because they're good at it and they seem to enjoy it and they're just habits develop. Just put your hand up and say, hey, Today, I'm not even very good at praying. I think I might stink at it, but could I say it out loud? And that's a huge area of trust for you to step out and to make that thing. Um, expose yourself to something that breaks your heart. Pray for something. I love this. Pray for something that's impossible, but that you believe is aligned with the heart of God. Pray for that thing that might be impossible. Write it down and see what God starts to do about that or attempt something that you could never do without the help of God. Oftentimes, if I'm super real and honest with you, church, oftentimes we don't do these things because we don't want to be at the place where we open the door and let Jesus in, but he doesn't come through. We don't want to put ourselves at the place where we need God. And we depend on God because we want to protect ourselves from being and getting hurt. And so I just want to challenge you and say, isn't it better? Even though that's a possibility, isn't it better to hurt with a purpose and with a passion than to exist without one? Identify that issue. 
do one thing every day this week that requires faith. Keep your eye on the prize. In Revelation 21, chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus ends it with this way. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Church, do you know how radically countercultural that is? For a king to say, listen, I'm just right outside the door. Open the door and I'll come and I'll sit with you. In fact, I'll invite you to sit with me on my throne. We can share my throne. Do you know how, how, un- how absurd that is in that culture? Because listen to me, they had a king. And they knew about the throne and the table of the king. And it wasn't like that. The king that they had when this was written was a king, an emperor of Rome named Domitian. And Domitian was a terrible human being. He was an awful person. Typically what happened after a Roman emperor died is that he would be installed, he would be recognized as a deity, as a god. But Domitian said, no, no, why have all the fun after I'm dead? I want to be a God up front. And so he started calling himself a God. He built temples so that he could get worshipped at them. He reminted the coins with his face on them and lightning bolts in the background so that he could pretend he was the new Zeus, like the king of the pantheon of gods. This is Domitian. And he demanded everybody worship him. And if anybody refused to worship him, They would be tortured and they would be executed. They'd be persecuted. And the Christians received that maybe more than anybody else because they refused to worship anybody except for the God of the Bible. And so Domitian was awful to them. In fact, he was awful to so many people, interrupting everything that the people couldn't stand him. And even it got to the point where so many people wanted him dead that his wife organized a murder plot of him. When it came time for him to die, as the legend goes, this isn't in the Bible, but this is kind of extra biblical stuff. He opened his arms and he said, fine, kill me, stab me. It doesn't matter. I'm not going to die because I'm God. And then they, and then they did. And then he found out he wasn't actually a God because he died. And he was so loathed and disrespected that they actually tried to scrub him from memory. They took down the temple. They took down the statues. They etched out his inscriptions. They wanted to be done with him. But Jesus is saying, I'm not like him. Jesus is saying to the church then and to the church today, I'm not like him. I'm opposite of him in every way possible. Because I don't demand, I don't demand you your life without giving it back to you. And Jesus is saying, I'm knocking on the door. I want to come in. I want to eat with you and you with me. In fact, I'm sitting on a throne that is actually above Domitian's throne. I'm eating at a table that's actually above Domitian's table. And I'm willing to share this with you as a co-heir in Christ. I'm willing to, to participate in this kingdom with you. And my kingdom will never end, unlike his kingdom, which had a very clear and distinct Endpoint. I'm standing here right now. This is what matters. This is the prize. Don't ever forget that. We, we can wallow in this sense of spiritual complacency and apathy, but don't ever forget what's at stake. And what's at stake is nothing short of highest eternity. What's at stake 
is nothing short than the glory of God forever and ever. Amen. Don't ever forget that. Do one thing this week that requires faith. We're going to end by singing this song now. And I love this line in the song that says, your presence is an open door of endless possibilities. Because Jesus is standing outside. And if we let him in, he's saying, you're letting me in to eat with you and to reign with you. You're letting me into eternal possibilities. You're letting me in not to harm you, but to heal you. You're letting me in to bless you and keep you and bring your life peace. Let him in, church. Let him in by pulling out that prayer card in the seat back in front of you. Checking that box that says, I made Jesus my savior today. Checking that box that said, maybe I renewed my relationship with Jesus today. Drop it in the box between the doors on your way out. Let him in by heading to the prayer team table in the back of church right behind you during this last song. Let him in by just simply telling that prayer person, I'm ready to let him in. Let him in, church. Let him in. Do one thing this week that requires That got a little long. We could, uh, I could redo it and make it shorter.